Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name." So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's more than 26 years ago, back when I was still in Houston, that one day I was riding down Interstate 10 and I heard a commercial on the radio that I still remember to this day. Now you stop and think about how many commercials you hear in a day's time. And the fact that 26 years later I can still recall it is really quite something. But it really spoke to me. I mean, it wasn't a jingle about selling soap or cars or anything like that. No, it was a story, and it just suddenly had started, and it was a story about a man named Stanley. Stanley was a young man. He had fallen in love. He wanted to get married, but he needed to speak to his future father-in-law to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. And so he went to his father-in-law, and he asked to get married, and the father-in-law said, well, how are you going to support and take care of my daughter? And Stanley said, well, I'm in medical school. I intend to do research. I want to cure illnesses. I want to help heal people. And his father-in-law said, well, that's fine, that's fine. But that's really not necessary anymore. I own a purse manufacturing company. You can come to work for me. And so Stanley dropped out of medical school. He got married. In the end, they had a couple of children. Soon he was president of the company. He ran the company for a number of years until finally Stanley retired. And then Stanley and his wife moved into the Shady Nook retirement home. They would live there for the rest of their lives until his wife died and then Stanley died. Suddenly you hear music and you can tell it's a change of scene. And then there's this voice and I could immediately tell it's the voice of a preacher you hear this voice and you're quick to realize we're now at a funeral. And the voice is saying, we're going to miss Stanley. He was such a good man. As most of you know, Stanley was the best gin rummy player in all of Shady Nook. But what you may not know is that Stanley had the lowest cholesterol number of anybody here at Shady Nook. 
suddenly there's more music. And the scene, you can tell, is changing again. And now a voice says, wouldn't it be terrible to live your whole life and never make a ripple? To never rock the boat? Join the Peace Corps. Whoa, man, I didn't see that one coming. I mean, it really caught me. I, I, I turned off the radio and I just kept thinking about that question. Wouldn't it be terrible to live your whole life and never make a ripple? To never rock the boat? I started thinking, I want to make a ripple. I want my life to have some significance I want the world to be a little different because I had this period of time in history. Is my life going to make a difference? And the more I thought about it, the more I I realized, you know, I think that's a, a fundamental hunger for every human being. Every human being wants to know that their life is significant. That because they've lived, this world is different. That you make a ripple. It's why this morning I want to continue on with this sermon series, Daring Greatly. I love this idea that it is our faith that really calls us to risk greatly, to dare greatly, to follow Christ in such a way that you and I make a ripple. We rock the boat. The world is different because we have lived. Each week we've been going back and thinking about this statement. I've had this on a plaque and on my wall at different times through my last 40 plus years of ministry. I love thinking about what Teddy Roosevelt said. It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how strong, how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end of the triumph of high achievement, And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. We don't want to be cold and timid souls who never know victory or defeat. We want to be the people whose lives make a ripple and whose lives have been significant. It's what made me think about our scripture lesson this morning because it's about a person who made a ripple. It's probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's the story of the conversion of Saul to the Apostle Paul. Now, a little of the backstory before our scripture lesson started today. I know you will remember how Saul was a Roman soldier. Saul was a good Jew. He loved God. He was very faithful, but he was one of these religious people who believed that he had all the truth, and if you thought anything different, you were wrong and you were bad. 
And so Saul had gone to the high priest and asked for arrest warrants for people who were following the way. When you read in the Bible, you'll hear about the way. That's what the church was called in the first century, the way. It's the way of Christ. And you had the people who were following on the way. And those are the people that Saul wanted to persecute. So basically he got these arrest warrants from the high priest. He heard there were some people in the way in Damascus. And he set out for Damascus. And along the way, he is suddenly hit with a bright light that knocks Saul off his horse into the dirt and blinds him. I remember being back in seminary and thinking, man, that's great evangelism. He's knocked off his horse by a bright light into the dirt. And he hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was hearing the voice of Christ. It was his men that helped to get him up. They lead him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days and nights he does not eat nor drink. He fasts and prays. He is a religious man. And in the meantime, God comes to Ananias with a vision. Ananias is a part of the way. And he says, Ananias, will you go to Saul, lay hands on him and heal him? And so Ananias comes to Saul, he lays hands on him, and it says the scales fell from his eyes and he could see. Now now don't miss all the symbolism that was going on here, more than just the story. What you have is Saul going blind. It wasn't just physical blindness, it was blindness of a heart. He was a man of great hatred and anger, blinded by the light of the world. And he goes to Damascus for three days and three nights. It was Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead on the third day. This is a story of Saul dying and Paul being resurrected, born. And when the scales fall from his eyes and he can see, it's not just about his eyesight, it's about his heart that now he looks at people different. He will look at God different. He looks at the world different. He can see. Now this is a story about a man who makes a ripple. But I'm not talking about Paul or Saul. I'm talking about Ananias. Whenever you and I read this story, we don't think so much about Ananias. And yet the church owes Paul to Ananias. The man who is more like you and me, a normal person, a part of the family of faith, who heard God speak and said, go. Go to Saul and lay your hands on him and give him his sight. And he was willing to go. He had no idea the ripple he was about to create down through history. Understand, I really do believe your life is significant. I believe that no matter how young or how old, God wants to speak to you so that you are the one 
who is able to do the things that make a ripple, that rock the boat. Your life is significant. God uses you to make a ripple. How did Ananias do it? How can you and I do it? That's what I want us to think about this morning, and there's three things that I want us to see. First, Ananias would listen to God speak about things that didn't seem to make sense. You know, sometimes when we read the Scripture, we make these people way too holy. They're not normal. Let's go back and really just think about Ananias and what went on. God says, Ananias, I want you to go heal the blindness of Saul. Ananias had to have said, are you kidding? This man wants to come and arrest me. This man wants to come and arrest your followers of the way. We're all thrilled to death. You struck him blind. We figure that's how you're going to save us. He's blind. And now you want me to go to him and heal his blindness? That doesn't make any sense. But God said to Ananias, He has been chosen to go and speak to the Gentiles and to kings and to the sons of Israel. It didn't make sense. It would stretch him, make him anxious, afraid. But Ananias would go. As I was saying, you know, it's good to be back from our Reformation trip. But what an incredible experience to go and to walk where Martin Luther walked. We spent our time in Germany and then over in England to be where John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, walked. It was, it was a great experience. It is going to be the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther tacked his 95 thesis on the church door there at the castle in Wittenberg. On October the 29th, we're going to have a big celebration of that 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. No, when we landed in Frankfurt the very first day, we went to Eisenach. And there we went to Luther's house. And then when right outside of town, we went to Wartburg Castle. It's this huge castle sitting high up on this high hill. And they drove us out there kind of up a ways. And then we stopped and, and they said, all right, you know, we're going to go walk on up to the castle now. If you really feel like you need a, a car, you can rent one down here. and Someone will drive you up to the top. We had a a few very smart people go get the car. They paid to go to the top. They were having trouble walking, but the rest of us obviously headed up the stairs. It turned out to be the toughest walk we had of the whole trip. The first thing right after you've landed, after flying all night long, and I mean we started heading up these stairs, there was more than 300 all different shapes and sizes and heights, and it's just heading right on up to this castle. And many people had to stop along the way and sit down, and they were sucking air. As their pastor, I made sure that I went and stopped with all of them who were needing help. I believed in that motto, nobody left behind now, you know. I I went over to sit and encourage, we can all do this. And, oh man, it was tough. We got to the top and 
the view was worth it. It was amazing. To be able to look out over Eisenach and the countryside, but the castle, Wartburg Castle, they laid the foundation a thousand years ago. A thousand years. And it really was in its heyday in the 12th through about the 18th centuries, it never had its walls breached. But what made the castle at Wartburg special was that in 1521, Martin Luther had gone before the Diet of Worms. There you had Leo, Pope Leo X, who declared he was a heretic and sentenced him to die. And on his way back home, Frederick the Wise, the king of that part of Germany, staged a mock kidnapping, swept in and got Luther and carried him away to Wartburg Castle where no one knew. And that way he could hide out in Wartburg Castle and let things kind of die down. He would be there for over a year. And it was in Wartburg Castle where Martin Luther went and sat in a room and he started to translate the New Testament from Greek into German. We went and stood in that room. The room where Luther sat and translated the Bible. Now, this was against the law. People all knew you should not do that. I mean, there would people like John Huss years before, about 50, 60 years before, he had talked about that and tried to do it, and they got him burned at the stake. John Whitcliffe, well, he was before that, about 100 years before. He also talked about putting the Bible into English. People could read. Well, he died, but once they got to talking about Huss, they got so mad they went and dug his bones up and burned him, cut him up and threw him in the river. That's how mad they were at him. And now Martin Luther has this idea. He said every layman should be able to have a Bible and read what God has to say. You know, the reason you have stained glass in churches is they always have stories of the Bible. And since people were illiterate, the priest could go and look at the stained glass in the picture and tell you the Bible story, and it's how you learned about the things in the Bible. And so only one person would be able to read. And Martin Luther said, A layman armed with the Bible is more powerful than the Pope. Wow. That'll get you burned at the stake. Took him about 10 weeks. He translated. And the other thing was, it was Gutenberg who had created the printing press the same time in history. And now they could take this and print it and be able to mass produce all these Bibles in German. It was one of those moments that changed history. Because Martin Luther could hear God speak about something that was going to really threaten a lot of people. It got a lot of people burned at the stake. You would have to dare greatly. It was meaningful to be there. When we left Germany, we went over to England to walk in the footsteps of John Wesley. And you know the thing I loved about John Wesley? Is that John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was so clear about what he believed. He was rigid and dogmatic and so open to new ideas. 
to be able to know what you believe and yet to be open to new ideas. I mean, for instance, he was an Anglican priest and he preached in church and yet only the wealthy came to church, not the poor. They weren't welcome at church. And so Wesley had a friend, George Whitfield, who was out preaching in the fields of all places and thousands were coming out of the coal mine. And he said, Wesley, why don't you come do this? And Wesley writes in his diary and says, how can you possibly worship God if you're not in church? Beyond his thinking. Didn't make sense. We went to Bristol where they had the new building. This building there in Bristol, the first church, or the first building the Methodist church would own, wasn't very far from there at Hanham Mount that finally Wesley decided to try and he went and stood outside and there he preached and thousands would come. And Wesley decided, you can preach outdoors and go to all the people. He would have to wrestle with ideas like only preachers could get out and preach and lead a service. And then he would discover no lay people can do a good job at that too. Only men can do it. And he began to discover no women can do that too. You know, Wesley struggled with all these things. He thought he believed, but as he listened to God speak, he began to think ideas that he had never thought before, and it's what started the Methodist church. To be able to think in new ways. Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it's going to be scary. But I'm asking you to go to Saul. And to heal him. And Ananias made a ripple. Are you willing to listen to what God has to say to you? It's not just what you're deciding to do. It's what God is asking you to do. Are you willing to listen to God speak? And ask you to do those things that may stretch you, make you anxious, that don't even make sense. Are you willing to dare greatly? You have to if you're going to make a ripple. Secondly, when God speaks to you, I can be sure that whatever God asks you, He's going to ask you to do it in great love. You know, I don't understand these people who will go out and maim and kill and then tell you they did it in the name of God. God doesn't ever ask us to kill one another. When you go back and look at Jesus, he didn't ask his followers to go kill and maim. No, when you go and listen and God tells you what to do, you can be sure it's going to be about loving. We went to Wesley's Chapel there in London. And it was an incredible place. It's built in 1778. It's still a working church. It's not a museum. It's a working church. They have a museum next door where Wesley lived and died. But the church itself is a working church. And you come in and they got this balcony all around. And all these flags are coming out of the balcony. And I got to talking to the preacher. She was brand new, only been there a week. And she said the flags represent all the countries of the people who worship at the church. I thought, man, look at all the different people from around the world who are coming there to worship. 
But what I really loved, though, was down front you had the pulpit and then you had this railing and an altar where you come to take communion that was actually given by Margaret Thatcher when she and her husband were married there in Wesley Chapel. And they were so grateful they, they gave the communion rail in that area. But behind the pulpit, there were these three arches, like, like tablets, if you will. And the center one, the biggest one, was the Apostles' Creed. It's the creed we read earlier today. The Apostles' Creed. Because John Wesley believed in the Apostles' Creed, you need to know what you believe. He had his mother, Susanna, write a book about the Apostles' Creed. But what I loved was on either side of it, there was another one of these tablets. And the one on one side said, The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the other tablet on the other side, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The symbolism was not lost on me. You must know what you believe. But it will be wrapped in God's love. Is what you believe going to help you love God and love your neighbor? That's what made Wesley special. He knew what he believed, but he was always open. Am I going to love God and love my neighbor? And that's going to open new ideas. Wesley would be able to say things like the Catholic spirit. The word Catholic means universal. He said, if you love Christ and you love your neighbor as yourself, give me the right hand of fellowship. We can be friends. That was a unique idea in the 1700s. It's still a unique idea sometimes today. If you love Christ and you love your neighbor, give me the right hand of fellowship. He came up with the statement of think and let think. Nobody has all the truth. Wesley had his statement of what do I believe, his creed in the center but it would be wrapped with God's love and it made it to where, you know, we're not going to fight and hate each other. People were dying in that day over, can you baptize by sprinkling a baby with water or do you have to be immersed as an adult? People died over that. Not from Wesley. No, Wesley wanted us to say we can be different in what we think and we can still respect each other it's why Methodists are able to work with the Catholics and the Baptists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Jews and the Muslims. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? We may think differently about some things, but we can be respectful and we can love each other. Wesley was so far ahead of his time, and yet so many people of today still have not caught up. Ananias was told to go to Saul, the one who was actually there to arrest him. And he goes to him and go back and read the scripture. Don't miss it. Because it says when he comes to Saul, he says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. It's not how you'd expect someone to address the man who's come to arrest you, the man who may kill people on the way. Brother Saul. I believe it was the grace of Christ that changed Saul into Paul. 
But I believe Saul may have been able to accept that grace because of the brotherliness, the kindness of Ananias who came and said, Brother Saul. And so third, if in the end you're willing to listen to God speak about things that don't make sense, to stretch, and to try, and you wrap it in love, if you are listening to what God is asking out of you and you are daring greatly, you're going to make a ripple. Your life will be significant. You may not see, you will not see all the direction the ripples go and all the ways you will have touched life in this world, but your life will have made a ripple and you will rock the boat. I think about Ananias. He has no idea what he just did. He went to brother Saul and the scales fall from his eyes. He had no idea that Paul would go on to become the greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church. That when Paul was on his missionary journeys, he would write a letter to the church in Rome. And there Paul would talk about it is through faith, it is by trusting faith in God's grace that we are made right with God, made righteous to be made right with God. Paul would write about that. It'd be 1,500 years later, Martin Luther was struggling because he felt he was not good enough to be loved by God. Martin Luther was struggling that he could not be loved by God. He wasn't good enough. He was struggling in his life and he was in Wittenberg There where he was a professor, up in a tower, wrestling and reading this passage in Romans. Romans 1, 17, when he has an aha moment. And he realized, I'll never be good enough to be loved by God. It is by faith, by trusting in God's grace alone, that we are saved. And Martin Luther would say, sola fide, sola gratia. Sola Scriptura, faith alone, in God's grace alone, through Scripture alone, we are saved. He said it's like being born again. It set him on fire with an enthusiasm. And Luther started that reformation and helped to change the world. It would be 200 years later, John Wesley would be in London. He went to a Bible study at Aldersgate. He was struggling because he didn't feel good enough to be loved by God. And because he didn't feel good enough to be loved by God and he was struggling in his faith, he goes to this Bible study and they are reading Martin Luther's preface to the Romans. Romans 1, 17. And he says, I'm reading this and my heart was strangely warmed. He was born again. Suddenly a new enthusiasm, a feeling to go out and he would start the Methodist church. What I discovered was God loved not only the whole world, God loved me, even me. It would be 300 years after John Wesley had his moment 
that there would be a group of 33 Oklahomans standing outside Wesley Chapel, out beside John Wesley's tomb. And we would come together to celebrate Holy Communion and to think about the calling that Wesley had for his people and how we were coming back home to a church of thousands of people who are committed to sharing God's love and bringing hope to the world. Ananias had no idea that he would go to Paul, who would write his letter that would change Luther, who Luther would write his preface that would change Wesley, who Wesley would go into the world and how it would change us. I'm telling you, if you listen, God will speak. If you try to do what God is asking out of you, you're going to make a ripple. You're going to rock the boat if you choose to dare greatly. It's in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.